Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Hackneson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? What do you do with an elephant with three balls? What do you do with an elephant with three balls? You walk him and you pitch to the giraffe. God. I, I heard this. It's an old car salesman joke. <laughs> And I heard it the other day, and I, I thought I was going to wet my pants. It just, it just so grabbed me, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous yeah, joke. That, that is funny. But it, it just, you know, it's a, a reminder of how sacred and insane humor is, how irreducible it is. You know, you just can't explain it. So yeah. that's kind of the mood that I'm in. The trickster, the jokester, the jester, the hayoka the chaos agent loki uh all of these spirits of humor and fun and uh holding on to things loosely and taking none of them seriously will be very relevant for our conversation once we get into it but before we do that you have given me my five words of which i am to choose two um, what's my imaginative challenge for the day? Let's just have a quick report on the last time because I thought you did a really good job of, of that. You got one disposed of almost straight out of the gate, uh, which I was very impressed with, and then which was amalgam. And then later, you managed to work in nuclear in a really interesting way. Do you remember what you did? Just as to remind listeners. Um, what did I do to put nuclear in there? Uh, I can tell you because I can tell, remember. Yeah, I didn't write me, it down. Tell me. You used either the, ter- the phrase nuclear grade, uh, nuclear grade ideas. Mm-hmm. You used it as a, a, a descriptor of great power in a really, really interesting way. So nu- rather than talking about nuclear arms or the nuclear family or you know any, any more nuclear science or on and on and on, nuclear strength or nuclear grade uh, was a really, really nice way to go. Thanks. So, okay, I do have uh, an imaginative challenge for you. Uh, and we're going to go back to storytelling, okay? So you're going to come up with an outline... Uh, Kind of a, you could think of it as a film treatment, perhaps. Uh, but the working title is Millennial Demic. Millennial Demic. This sounds like a good okay. one. I'm in. Okay. And you have a choice as uh, a trickster figure uh, yourself. You have a choice of whether or not you go comedic or you go kind of scary. Uh, maybe even to the horror end. You've got a spectrum there. But the idea is that you are telling the story in the first person. Uh, You're an investigative reporter, not a private investigator, but an investigative reporter. And you begin to notice that there are examples around America where uh, parent-age people have died under mysterious circumstances. And in each instance, they have a millennial-age 
offspring either still living at home or back living at home. And you begin to sniff around and start connecting dots and begin to wonder if somehow all of these deaths aren't homicides and perhaps there's a common feature to them, mm. a common cause, a common mechanism. Okay? Mm. Any questions? No. No. That sounds great. I'm just going to take a quick... Millennial Demic. Millennial Demic. Can I, can I come up with a, with a title as well? Oh, yes, please. That's just a working title, working sort of, you know, further suggestion in the prompt. Okay. So you are free to do whatever you want with that premise. Okay. Excellent. So last episode, we had one of my favorite conversations to date, and it centered around the, I believe, critical idea for this day and age that if you want to make it, if you want to survive in this world, you have to be able to hold ideas loosely. Sometimes you have to be able to hold two paradoxical ideas at the same time in your head. And we talked about uh, the urge that some folks have to, quote, normalize complexity. And it was a heady talk, but clear, I think. I think we got our point across with that. But something that I caught the scent of at the end that I wanted to make a whole episode out of this time was how to map that onto a day-to-day -day life. Most of us have jobs. Uh, when we have free time, we are engaging in some form of quote-unquote relaxing activity. Social media, maybe even real-life socializing, going to the movies, going to the park, hanging out with our families, not hanging out with our families. And so I want to uh, hear what you have to say, because I, I know that you'll have things to say, and I want to riff off of them about a practical sort of guide to to how how to inhabit this kind of elasticity of of thought. So wherever you'd like to start on that, I'm buckled in. I'm ready to go. Okay. Well, I think that is a, a good objective, and I think it's achievable for this episode. Uh, it seems to me an interesting place to start would be uh, to hearken back to one of the major ideas uh, from very, very early on in the series of, of what we can learn from indigenous people. Uh, because we said that one of the key characteristics of their mindset versus technologized nations' uh, mindsets and social patterns is this ability to avoid cognitive dissonance and to actually find coherence uh, in what would be a very dissonant situation uh, from a Western point of view. And one example came to my mind. Um, the colony of New Guinea uh, gained independence in the mid-1970s and became the nation-state of Papua New Guinea, which remains in, in great social and political and cultural turmoil to this day. Uh, but I did. I was on the scene to see some of the aftermath of that in the 80s because there were a lot of problems. Many of the tribal leaders 
got into huge competitions about who would be in the federal parliament. You know, not surprisingly, that was a, there was a lot of money on the line, a lot of prestige. And we're talking about powerful men with big egos. There was also the one talk system, W-A-N-T-O-K, one talk, which is an, an absolutely enforced and unquestionable uh, loyalty to family and clan first. That's the social, you can't get around that. If you get promoted to a certain position, you are socially obligated to advantage, say, your brother-in-law. It's, it's nepotism uh, just built in concretely to the social life, which made democratic uh, you know, functioning in, in any sort of conventional sense difficult. But there was one leader in the Highlands who... I mean, he was such a problem. He was seen to be not just a Wontok uh, follower and, and contributing to family and friends in a sort of grafty kind of way. I mean, he was an outright crook. Mm-hmm. He was seen as, uh, you know, a, a kind of gangster. He was a, a womanizer on a level that we would never tolerate in a leader, you know, openly uh, in, in our situation. And yet... If you asked people, they would say yes to all of those deficiencies or vices. But they would say, he's a great leader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they really, really meant it. And mm-hmm. when I looked into that a little bit more deeply, I, I saw, well, womanizer that he was, he was a pioneer of women's health care in the region. Mm-hmm. He was a pioneer of, of educational resources. He called upon the established religions who often, you know, have a kind of colonial influence still to rein that in a bit and to deliver more public good. Uh, he, he was great on infrastructure and he really was the great leader as well as a tremendous scoundrel, you know. Right. And, right. and people managed to hold those two ideas together without the slightest bit of confusion. And here's my starting point for this, to uh, kind of hit the ball back to you. It seemed to me, and I'm, I'm fairly certain I'm right about this, that the ease with which they managed these two completely at odds perspectives on this individual, and they weren't just perspectives, they were substantive realities about the man, the way they managed to hold those together in a coherent fashion was because they could talk completely openly with each other about both sides. Right. Nobody right. was afraid to, to share both those perspectives. And so they, they got equal time and intermingled. So that's my, th- my thought back to you. What do you think about this, this idea that the ability to talk openly about extremely conflicted values, ideas, what have you, that, that that changes the nature of the ideas and therefore may not eliminate the conflict, but certainly reduces it. Well, I think that that might be one of the major issues that we're facing right now in our public discourse to the point that it makes discourse almost impossible to engage in. I think that you can see it 
uh, we're talking today on May the 23rd of 2022, and the current villain of Twitter is Elon Musk because of his attempted takeover of Twitter. And this is a figure who causes derangement syndrome in people. Uh, I am not the, his, his biggest fan. I don't think you need to be fans of public figures to find them interesting or some of the things that they do uh, compelling, but there's always been a kind of, uh, you know, sort of suspicion around where he got his wealth from. There's talk of his father owning a, a slave run or a, 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 you know, a diamond mine or a ruby mine, emerald mine in South Africa. So that money being sort of built off of blood diamonds and recently, they pulled out the oldest trick in the book, which is finding uh, a woman, uh, of which I'm assuming there are hundreds, if not thousands, who have similar stories, who was propositioned for sex by Elon Musk while getting a massage. And <laughs> this is, I have to assume that if you have, you know, more than $50,000 in your bank account, uh many people would be found to have skeletons such as this in their closet. Not you or I, of course, because we're fine upstanding <laughs> men. But most people would probably use that power to attempt to engage in sexual activity with whomever they could, whenever they could. And so they found one of these women who said that she was giving him a massage and he offered to buy buy her a horse if she gave him a hand job, something like that. It's all... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear that part. God, close only counts in horses and hand grenades or horses and hand and jobs. jobs. Right, 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 right. And Jeez. so this, you know, this woman comes forward and, uh, you know, I, here's the thing. I don't disbelieve her story. I don't think that the woman is a liar necessarily. I'm not a psychic and uh, the, the complexities of it are too dense for me to get into. But... I'd believe her, um, but I also don't think that that matters in terms of what he wants to do in terms of cleaning up Twitter, getting rid of some of the bot, most of the bots, of which, by the way, it has been determined half of Joe Biden's 34 million followers are, in fact, bots. Um, Glad I didn't know that. I yeah, gonna... yeah. So, I, you know, I'm able to hold those two things and say, you know, I don't doubt that he propositioned a woman for sex who maybe didn't want to have sex with him at all and maybe felt very uncomfortable in the situation. It's all very unfortunate. Uh, but also, uh, you know, that doesn't really move the needle for me uh, at all. Um, there are, I think, in most political figures, you find this. And what you end up with in American discourse is you have, uh, you know, people on the left, you know, showing a picture of Donald Trump talking to Ghislaine Maxwell, the notorious madam of Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and then people on the right turning around and showing a picture of Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton with, with Epstein, you know, and saying, but, but they were friends. Um, and the, where both sides are messing up there is that they have put up a mental block that it would probably take years of therapy to break down that yes in fact both of them probably consorted with these sex traffickers and probably partook in the the trade 
right? They, they're all probably guilty of this, but yet at the same time, you have to set that aside and say, well, whose, whose policies affect your life at the end of the day? Uh, and just me saying that, I know, would get a lot of people incensed, but it's true. I don't know how else to put it. You have to be able to hold the idea that people who have money and power are almost categorically scumbags, and yet they have all the money and, pa and power. So, so how would you like that money and power to be used? Right. Well, uh, listen, there's a lot of things going on there uh, that, that harken back to some major segments in, in uh, the history of the podcast where we talked about, we had a, a series called The Diet of Illusion that focused on the media uh, and its strange blurring of lines between the commercial news media and the commercial entertainment uh, so there's the diet of illusion thing going on there that you mentioned. Certainly the cult of celebrity, which is another series that, that we ran. Uh, but one of the things I like that you said that kind of uh, connected uh, back to something we've touched on pretty recently about the question of do we need to have a policy individually on everything? A policy on everything, know? yeah, right. A, a lot of us feel that, you know, that pressure is if, you know, somehow we're going to get interviewed in some sort of serious way, as if, right? Mm -hmm. And our response is going to be terribly, terribly influential. So we've got to, we've got to have a policy. But you started off that response with the question of, of, of saying, well, you know, I'm not necessarily a fan of Elon Musk. And therefore, the implicit question, well, do we have to be a fan of, of every no. major no. figure? Do we have to be a fan of every celebrity? I mean, that is really uh, a very bizarre idea and a, and a very real pressure, I think, for a lot of young people where they feel like they have to be before or against. They've got to be, you know, they've got to have their little brand identity and right. fandom. Right. Is, is has a lot to do with that. And, you know, if you could just step free of the need for that and think, no, I actually don't have, uh, you know, any real uh, feelings either way. <laughs> yeah. Or I don't even know who this person is. Or, alternatively, you can reach the point. Somewhere in, a, in one of his books of prose, uh, some essays, uh, the poet James Dickey. He's been on my mind lately. I don't know why. Um, but he, he just makes a statement that uh, I, th I feel like I've grown old enough to admit that I will never be interested in ballet and baseball. Boom. Uh, yep. You know, it just draws the line, you know, and, and those are emblematic of a whole bunch of things, you know. He, he goes on to list quite a few other things. But, but the relief of, of thinking... Ah uh, no, I don't have to care about all of this right. stuff. I don't have to you care know? about it. Yeah. So if somebody were to ask you, you know, how do you feel about rich, frisky men asking masseuses for hand jobs? I could just say, I really don't have an opinion one way or the other. And just and it would be honest. And just <laughs> and just let that sit there. You know, like, well, you don't you don't think it's bad? And I'm like, well, I don't think it's good. But I don't know. I don't think it's bad. I, I don't have an opinion. Like it's that's that simple. What is your opinion on, you know, um, foxes digging through the trash in the streets of London? I, I don't have I don't have one. I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't affect me. 
I guess the foxes are hungry. So, but see, I'm already forming an opinion. I don't have an opinion on foxes rummaging through the trash. Well, you know, one theory of the media, and I have um, an interesting comment I wanted to uh, share with you. I'm glad this just made remind me of it. But one thought about the media is that it is an ecosystem of algorithms searching for these trigger points. What will make people think they they need to have an opinion? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you think of it that way, an algorithm of ecos an ecosystem of algorithms searching for trigger points about what will stimulate the need for policy making and opinions on the part of otherwise pizza eating, bill paying, uh, you know, trudging through life individuals, you know. Um, and, and also all of us too, not to be derogatory, you know, we're, we're all potential victims of that. Sure. But I, I think that's really an interesting way to think of what the, the composite media is now, uh, far from a source of information and connection and community, its, its objective is just the opposite. Or, or certainly, uh, it, it's, it's completely coldly neutral on, on, the, on any benefit. It's just seeking self-perpetuation and finding these trigger points that will get this engagement that no one really needs to have. You know, what we're really kind of talking about is having a Bartleby the Scrivener stance yeah, on some of these things, you know? Like, we just, I prefer not to. It's neither yes nor no. One of the great cultural moments of 2022 that sort of encapsulates all of this is the the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial that's been going on and been put have you followed this at all that's been all over YouTube and social media so you know I followed the headlines uh, I, I'm frankly just amazed that it that it is, has attracted so much attention because this is sort of defamation trial point two right I mean yeah well and, so I, I but I think that the reason why it has attracted so many people number one I mean you do have these archetypes in the uh, in this kind of whole shifting cultural opinion on the Me Too movement I think that this is a major kind of landmark cultural moment in that sense but on another level what I th- and this is to our point what I think is so interesting is that this trial has been going on for weeks there have been countless witnesses called text messages rummaged through uh, Depp and Heard have both taken the stand numerous times to recount past events and go into as much detail as they possibly can in front of the court and the public into their, their private love life, essentially. And at the end of it, I mean, you can gather impressions about the both of them, and I would be lying if I said I didn't have some impressions of what was going on, but you know, my wife has a completely different impression of the whole thing. So... All of that is to say you can have all of this information, this, uh, you know, Borgesian library of, you know, like an Akashic record, practically, of what happened. And you still can't get a consensus on who's right and who's wrong. So in the face of that, what stance makes more sense than that of Bartleby the Scrivener? Just, I, I prefer not to. I It's... It's whatever. That is a wonderfully ambiguous uh, story of Melville's. Uh, 
I actually did uh, some of my thesis, master's thesis on that. Oh, really? Okay. It's just just part of the bigger thing, but uh, it, it's it's open to so many, so many different interpretations. But I heard in this last exchange something that I, I have to speak to and, and uh, tease out further with you, if you will. Uh, okay, so you mentioned that Rios has a totally different perspective than you do on this. Mm -hmm. Could I be so bold to suggest that in very crude, simplistic terms, that I'm, just for the sake of this conversation, mm -hmm. that she is sort of more pro-Amber Heard yeah. and that you are pro-Johnny Depp? <laughs> that is correct, yes. Okay, all right, okay. This is, this is fantastic, people. Look, Pay close attention to this. This is cool because this is in real time. Okay, so we have a pretty classic schism here between male and female perspectives and, and who is seen as the sympathetic figure in this celebrity court drama. Well, we talk a lot about the, the power of inversion, inversion as a tool, a tool to gain greater rhetorical clarity and, and greater perceptual clarity, seeing beyond the rhetoric built into situations. Imagine this scenario. Imagine taking a conversation between Rios and David, and you record that and you transcribe it so that it's, it's a play script. But now you reverse the roles. So Rios reads David's part, and David reads Rios's part. That is a really cool possible inversion. And you can do it as a thought experiment. It'd be fantastic to do it in, in real life because I think it would be enormously revealing. There's nothing quite like having someone else's literal words come out of your mouth and vice versa. It just changes the whole dynamic. And you start to see things about, well, you know, is it what's said or is it who's saying it? Is it what we expect to hear or what we in fact do hear, but don't want to hear, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I think that um, the next time I want to be in big trouble, I should suggest that we swap roles and argue for the other side. I can already hear her now telling me I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? <laughs> but it would be interesting to have it read as a... As a didn't you, you mention that on... A, uh, as a classroom exercise, right? Having yeah, I having students take opposite uh, or, or read uh, read some kind of dialogue back and it was Trump, right? Trump and Clinton. Who, yeah, I, I did. I did a lot of classroom work, but I took the idea from something that was done at NYU, uh, and I think it was a great idea. Mm -hmm. um, and what they did was was it, it's an idea that is often used in terms of, of switching scripts. But they did it in a very, very famous context with, I think, the second of the uh, Hillary Clinton-Trump uh, debates, uh, if you want to call them debates. Mm -hmm. And they, they flipped uh, the scripts. And what was interesting is that they all admitted to uh, being completely surprised by the results because they did it in front of a live audience who had been given no briefing instructions at all about what was to happen and they were equipped with those little you know instantaneous feedback devices that 
that you have at real debates. So you can sort of follow it second to second about where where the crowd, you know, sympathy is. And it was fascinating, uh, very unexpected results of that. Mm-hmm. But I think the technique is worth thinking about in many situations because it, it is one of these tools that, that gives us some new leverage, some new clarity. So this leads uh, back to what we're talking about in terms of being able to hold two ideas in their head, whether it's uh, having an opinion on the celebrity defamation trial or Elon Musk or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Something that I have noticed is it was first popularized with Donald Trump, this phrase called Trump derangement syndrome. And you would see people who I had to assume would wake up, have their coffee, and immediately start posting about how terrible a person Donald Trump was. And you can almost see them frothing at the mouth as they're typing this stuff out. And I've seen echoes of it in uh, people who are very obsessed with Hillary Clinton. I've seen it in people who are uh, on both sides of the of the COVID debate spectrum, you know, where their kind of their whole life becomes consumed by this COVID debate. Um, and they, they've sort of shifted their focus now to monkeypox, uh, which yes. doesn't it's seem a great to... Great name for a band. Doesn't Isn't really a great seem, name for it a is, band? It is, but it doesn't seem to have the same uh, je ne sais quoi as COVID. It's not going to catch on, right? Mostly because it only seems to transfer through uh, sex, mostly non-heteronormative sex, I'll put it that way. Um, but... Anyway, my whole point with that is that maybe a, a, a first step is for us to realize what what our own personal derangement syndromes are, right? Like what's what's this what's an <laughs> like idea that. that immediately sets us frothing at the mouth and maybe for a week it might be a good idea to attempt to inhabit the other position unironically non-sarcastically uh completely sincerely attempt to just live that other opinion for a while and when the week is up you might not keep that idea the idea is is specifically not to change your mind so to speak but it's the first step is just getting comfortable with these other ideas, realizing that you're not going to die, you're not going to get cooties by living with these other ideas. You're sort of vaccinating yourself. Boom, there you go, yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I look, you know, in a sense, if, if we just step back a little bit, I think uh, what what's sad about what you just said is that not so long ago, that was, if not the the number one goal, it was certainly in the top three of what we meant by a standard liberal arts education. Yeah, you know, I agree. Yeah, it, even it, when it I was, was in school it, in two thousand and five, that was that was still the standard. I think. Yeah, and it, it it's it's amazing how that ha- has become kind of a point of of nostalgia, because it's it's almost impossible to think of that being. Uh, of that being normalized, to use the normalized word in a different context, 
that would be, in my view, so far from being normalized today, even amidst the best of, of, of institutions of higher learning, that it's just, it's hard to, uh, to really consider. But the idea that that is now something that we have to be grateful for and, and seeking out with, with great effort, you know, in any way we can get access to it is really, uh, I think, a remarkable statement of, of what, what's come over us, you know? I think so. I think that when I was coming up in, in college, uh, somebody who I admired very much, and I know a lot of uh, similar friends of mine uh, did, uh, was uh, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, I always liked listening to him talk, and if you go on YouTube, you can find some great speeches that he uh, gives. Wonderful, um, wonderful. Uh, <laughs> sometimes to very hostile crowds about uh, Islam in particular. He, he is not very popular, some of the things he had to say about Islam. Um, but his whole idea was that he was an atheist. He felt that Islam in particular was... a uh, a threat to the world, which seemed much more realistic in the wake of 9-11. That's cooled off a bit, but not entirely. But he was a free speech guy, and he often would go on very eloquently, I think, about the fact that all of these ideas should be allowed, right? That he should not have a price on his head from these various organizations for saying what he said about Islam, but conversely, they shouldn't go to jail for their beliefs. They should be allowed to think whatever they wanted to think. So I think that there's a lot of really great kind of early 2000s performances of what we're talking about, uh, where, you know, he was willing to get drunk off of his ass and call you a moron, right? But that was part of the fun of watching this stuff. There were some great debate oh. shows, too. Bill Maher's show has had some bangers lately, but he used to have a show called Politically Incorrect. Do you remember that show? It would come on I do remember that. Week weeknights, yeah. and he'd have four panelists who you know, were from all different ends of the political spectrum, and they would argue, and they would call each other names, and it is genuinely hard to imagine that show existing in that form. Now, I mean, even his show on HBO doesn't even approximate what was going on in Politically Incorrect. You had, you know, Ann Coulter uh, kind of, you know, buddying up to, uh, you know, Democrat celebrities or Alex Jones. I don't, well, I don't know if Alex Jones ever went on the show, but people of that ilk sort of all having a beer together and calling each other stupid and being friends at the end of the day. Um, I miss that. Oh, I do. I think I think any thinking person does if they're really honest. I mean, Hitchens. Uh, I mean, who could agree with him all the time, even if they they loved him? But one of the most articulate speakers mm -hmm. that you could ever find. I mean, no one could be clearer off the cuff than he was, and never never seemed glib. I mean, what a powerful intellect and very funny too. Oh, hilarious. I mean, we, we miss him greatly. And you made me think of going back in time. Clive James was one of the three Australians uh, who 
big intellects who left Australia for different parts of the world. Robert Hughes went to New York. Jermaine Greer and Clive James went to London. Mm -hmm. And at one point, ages ago, ages ago, Clive James, the host of a show, had Jermaine Greer and David Mamet at the absolute top of his game uh, debating, you know, men and women in a big sense. And it was just fantastic. And there's absolutely no way that you could have that kind of discussion today. And I can't imagine where, what the format or the, the, the platform or the show that would put that forward would be. You know, the, but, these things are, are gone. But uh, having mentioned Hitchens, that, that did uh, trigger something else. And I wonder what you think about this, because I think there is a kind of... Uh, there's a figure that, that you could liken uh, to Hitchens in, in more recent times, uh, perhaps even a bigger intellectual rock star, and you know, God knows we don't have very many of those, uh, also very articulate, uh, also a, a, a real target for animosity, uh, perhaps even more so than, than Hitchens. And I'm thinking of Jordan Peterson. Yeah, you know? yeah. You want to talk about people who have derangement syndrome? This poor guy. Oh, I mean, he just gets his ass kicked on the internet every single day for some stuff that I personally think is is really kind of low and cruel. I mean, the guy's wife had cancer, and he got addicted to painkillers, and that's become sort of a gotcha fodder anytime he opens his mouth online. It's like, weren't you addicted to pain pills? I mean, talk about not having any compassion from the side, by the way, that's supposed to have compassion, right? I mean, I just, I, I alternate between agreeing, disagreeing, and just feeling really bad for this guy. Well, I think it's interesting that he became such a lightning rod for very, very serious animosity and, and never seemed to really get uh, the the critical analysis that I, I think that, that he was you know clearly deserving of and remains so. Uh, I, I don't know really why uh, the, the vitriol started so quickly and just couldn't separate itself to um, you know be kind of discussed in a, in, a, in a somewhat reasonable adult way but, you know, I mean, the first thought I had really, no matter what you think of any of his ideas, uh, it was kind of cool to see someone who could be called, I think, an intellectual, no matter what you feel about his uh, values and, and program. We, we haven't had many celebrity intellectuals, you know? I can remember in the day when, you know, people like Gary Snyder and Robert Bly would draw an audience of 3,000. You know, and that was a big deal. I can't imagine that today. But Peterson was doing that, you know, all around the country. I mean, all around the world, actually. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I was a little bit surprised that none of the... There was never a statement of, well, thank goodness there's an intellectual hero again, whether he's a villain or not, or an antagonist, let's say. Um, it's still good that there's you know something of that still working on the prestige level of culture at least you know he's not yeah. really a rock star in in uh, in crowd size or money terms really 
you know, he's not trying to go 100,000 at, you know, uh, Wembley or something. You know, it's it's not quite it's like pretty, that. It's pretty pretty damn big, though. It's it, he's He drew pretty substantial, especially to his YouTube channel. I think right. that if you factor in the views that a lot of his videos got and how uh, 12, 12 Reasons to Live, I think was his book, um, how long that spent at the top of the bestseller charts... Um, to your point about him being a public intellectual, there's a great video, it's on YouTube, of him debating and just kind of having a conversation with Camille Paglia, who's also kind of a, a titan in her own right in terms of public she is. intellectualism. Bless her heart. Yes. And uh, Peterson holds his own, right? I mean, it's, it's not a one-sided, it's not a creaming, it's not a slaughter, it's not somebody getting owned. He does pretty okay. And to listen to him... Uh, he was a little, he wasn't in peak form, his most recent appearance on Rogan a few months back, but some of his uh, earlier appearances on Rogan, especially when he was just kind of getting steam as, you know, the professor who refused to say pronouns, I think are classics. Uh, and I think he really, uh, for what he might have sort of faltered on in his terminology, most famously this idea of cultural Marxism, he got right in spirit. He he saw this whole thing coming, and and now he's uh, unfortunately reaping all that he has sown. Well, it's been an interesting interesting ride, and it's certainly not over yet. And uh, I I am very curious. I mean, one I would I would really like to, I would like to be around in ten years time for many reasons. But I think it would be interesting to see what his uh, reputation and body of work looks like then. Oh yeah, you know? no, that's a uh, that's a great point. I think I think what he's saying is is really going to resonate once everybody's head has cleared from this uh, peyote psychedelic uh, frothing at the mouth madness that we've been living in for the past ten years. Once once that dial turns and the cycle starts to go back to the way it was in the early 2000s, which I think it will. I think these things work on about 12-year cycles, and I pinpoint the beginning of this at 2012, so 2024, we're due for another turning. Uh, I think there will be a reevaluation of his his position in all this. Do you think that we've been on a kind of peyote trip, uh, or is that too natural and sort of sacred traditional a metaphor has it been some other kind of drug that we've been on i wonder i think that peyote is too often it is definitely sacred and it is uh ritualistic and all of those things but there are bad peyote trips and what peyote does because i've had good ones and bad ones i should clarify i should clarify mescaline right because it was always san pedro cactus for me not peyote but mescaline trips you know i've had good ones and i've had bad ones and the bad ones when they're really bad are terrifying but you do wake up the the next morning with a little bit of clarity right they're they're still showing you something so no i'd i'd stand by at least the mescaline metaphor uh in terms of okay this, no that's yeah. good i I, yeah. I i i wanted just a little pushback there i yeah. i think it's good i, I think yeah. that's a really good response cool. and uh it it connects you know we, we say we, we in our sort of own tripping way 
because uh, we inherit, you know, or maintain that logic, which I think we gained access to, you know, via certain substances. But I watched the, uh, for the first time in ages, I watched the 60s movie, the Roger Corman movie, The Trip, with, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Peter Fonda and uh, Bruce Dern and Dennis Hopper in a magical supporting role. And of course, there there are a couple of different dwarves or little people. That you just if you're going to do something about tripping, you've got to have little people in there. Totally. And there's one moment where Peter Fonda is sort of in an afterlife situation uh, in his within his trip, and uh, he's being interrogated by Dennis Hopper in these really weird robes and this really strange <laughs> merry-go-round environment. And uh, Hopper in real life, outside the trip, is, is one of his friends. Mm-hmm. But on this little carousel beside Hopper uh, is riding another little person in this big, like, pilgrim hat. Mm-hmm. And Peter Fonda at one point says, I, I have nothing to be sorry for and the little person in the big hat comes around on the carousel and says in this really weird voice bear pigs <laughs> <laughs> and, and just circles around like no explanation none at all no explanation oh, whatsoever man. and there are some moments in that that are really I think inspired I mean like Bob Rafelson's movie Head, you know, the monkeys movie. It, it's hard to do like hallucinogenic drugs well in the movies without, they created all the cliches, you know, from the light sure. shows of, yeah. of the of music things. The tracers there, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, exactly. But there are some moments that are just, just fantastic that have really opened up some doors culturally for the imagination. You know, the, in a way that I don't think the surrealists ever really got to, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't have those powerful mass market vehicles like movies and, and pop music, you know, which is important, yeah. I think, spiritually and tonally to accurately describing a drug trip, right? It can't all be kind of beautiful or even overtly ugly surrealism because every Every drug trip is, in a, in some sense, grappling with current reality, right? And part of current reality is the smooth, plastic Apple store. Uh, it would have been different, obviously, in the 70s, but it has to grapple with modernity. And a, a pop, big-budget vehicle is just better equipped to do that, I think, than, than a purely visual... Uh, you know, with some exceptions, a purely like you know DIY indie type budget that is very heavy on visuals. You know, I've I've actually, and this is a digression, but this is fun. I've often felt that about, uh, and I love his movies, but Alejandro Jodorowsky's stuff. You yes, know? like people uh-huh. often oh, yeah. often describe them as you know hallucinatory and uh, entheogenic and and what have you, and they are they are weird. But I think uh, short of Holy Mountain, which I think adequately gets in that uncomfortable synthetic feeling in some of those sequences. Um, That's a nice phrase, yeah. I, I think that his movies are actually a bit too 
a bit too whimsical and beautiful to adequately make you feel like you're tripping. So I, but I do think Holy Mountain is a classic of the, of the genre. Well, he's certainly in there with his his vision. I mean, I think that yeah. if you were teaching a course on on hallucination and cinema or the hallucinatory cinema, uh, you you definitely would would think about his work, no you'd question. Yeah, you have to. And and don't you think that that in a way that cinema, particularly cinema as opposed to TV, or that cinema is the perfect and maybe the only uh, possible way of conveying the psychogenic, psychedelic uh, experience, that you can't do it. You, music might be second, mm -hmm. but I, I think it's very difficult to do effectively in writing. I think you need to pay too much attention to it, and you get kind of overwhelmed. The, the surrealism gets a little bit on top. It's very hard to, get to keep the pacing right. Mm -hmm. to keep readers unhypnotized, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yourself as writer unhypnotized. So, you know, you get in a groove and you think, oh, this is fantastic. And then you think, Jesus, this is like, you know, prose poetry. It's, it's yeah. cool, yeah. but I'm, over, I'm overwhelmed with it. I'm, I'm, I can't, I gotta take a break, you know? Mm -hmm. And film, I think, works partially because it, it makes us passive viewers, but it gives us a little bit more sense of, of action and engagement. So that's inspiring for us as audience members. And the length of time plays with the notion of time, as you'd expect, you know, with psychoactive substances. So it seems like a, 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 a much better fit than any other art form with the actual uh, psychophysical experience of tripping, don't you think? I do think because uh, music is definitely a great aid in the psychedelic process, right? So it's it's something that I think opens up when you take psychedelics. But in terms of approximating the trip itself, I watched a movie twice, in fact, because I purchased it because I loved it so much. But it's it's a recent movie. It's called The Northman. It's a, a Viking Saga. Oh, I saw you post about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some tripping scenes in that that I think are some of the best in recent memory. And they're short sequences, you know, five minutes maybe. But they do it really, really well. And they are able to use the kind of uh, sonic theater of terror and hallucination to have some really powerful imagery, I think. But yeah, it's the combination of storytelling, visuals, and and audio uh, within that, like you said, very well, I think, uh, compressed amount of time that really, um, you know you know how when you're tripping balls, it feels like it lasts forever, but you've really only been high for 30 minutes? Um, yeah, oh yeah. That's, that's how a good movie can do that too. You know, you'd be like, how long have I been watching this? Oh, an hour. Okay, cool. <laughs> so the temporal think, aspect is is majorly important. Oh, absolutely! It's it's kind of I I think I think it might be the point in a sense. I wonder if we could throw it open to listeners to hit us up with their favorite uh, tripping or hallucinatory cinema experiences, and I will just share. <laughs> there was a moment. Uh, people who know Berkeley, you know, a typical sort of uh, well, nothing typical about Berkeley, but. As many university towns used to have, there are a lot of great 
uh, th movie theaters of various different sizes, a lot of old neighborhood theaters. I can remember being at a theater called The Oaks, and uh, I don't know, I must have been, like, I, I may have been a teenager, but I probably was like 12 or something, but the Walt Disney movie Fantasia had been re-released to capitalize basically on the drug market, you know? There was no doubt about that. And it was, the theater was absolutely packed. And I think that my family, we might have been the only people who weren't under the influence of something pretty intense. <laughs> and at the end of, of the movie, you know, you're just overwhelmed by all the color and the sound, the music, and it's just like so much stimulus. I remember standing up with, with the lights coming on, looking around, and nobody else in the theater was moving. They were just stunned. <laughs> the looks on their faces, it was like their faces were gone. They were still watching the movie. The experience had not ended and might not end for several hours. It was just after image, just befuddlement. It was fabulous. Oh, that's, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. I, you know what? I was going to go off on something for a second, but I actually, I want to bring it back to Jordan Peterson. So how do you, how do you figure him into all this? Well, I think that he's an example, uh, and I have tried to think of other examples in, in sort of the moment, and I really can't, uh, of someone who has sort of captured the public imagination from a non-political appointment. Uh, I mean, he's, he's sort of self-made in that sense. He's a conventional uh, speaker, writer, uh, teacher, uh, clinical psychologist, so he's a civilian, and yet he, he kind of, you know, created this guru place for him, however we feel about gurus, and I think historically that's it's pretty mixed, you know, I think there's great sense of heroism and adulation, and then there's often, uh, you know, crucifixion <laughs> yeah. of some kind, right. and I, I think he's a pretty prominent person in terms of this uh, historical moment. And I think he, he had one of the, the, the reasons why I think he, he triggered particularly the left so much is that they know he's got fingers on a lot of different pulses. That, and that's kind of what a shamanic presence is, I think, at any given, in any age. But it's certainly what's needed. That you need to really be on top of a few streams of thinking and values and conflict that are converging and, and in combat, you know, in the marketplace of ideas. And, and he, he, you know, really performs that. Um, I don't know who else is in that sort of category, in a sense. I think people like Bill Maher have a, have a big platform. Uh, I'm kind of admiring him more and more as time goes by. Um, but even people with, you know, platform, uh, Joe Rogan or the gals on The View, uh, those are, that's a pretty big <laughs> dichotomy there. Um, I, I don't know if they transcend the power of their platform, you know. I think that they, they've got reach, uh, whereas, you know, 
if you go way back in time to like a character like Wolfman Jack using this big, you know, radio blasting thing across the border in Mexico, like that was his platform and it was powerful. But he was a larger than life sort of mythic figure that really, you know, aligned with the platform, with the channel in a way that mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to imagine that. So I don't know how many more people that we have in that Peterson category on either side of the political spectrum or on no side of a political spectrum, just as some sort of, um, you know, pop icon of such significance that... Uh, it's like a magnet for, for attention and uh, some kind of respect from mm. you know, vastly different quarters. I mean, can you think of anyone who is on that level that really unifies or disunifies? Because I think you've got to do both. Uh, well, you do have to do both. I, I'm so glad you brought that up because really quick, I had this thought today in terms of sort of my own reception with the public, which is very love and hate, I suddenly realized that in order to make any kind of impact at all, you can't have one without the other. And so many people who I know who just have the love or conversely just have the hate don't quite make it. But you, you, you sort of need both. I think that right now... Um, in terms of intellectualism... There's a lot going on just below the surface in the podcast sphere. I do think mm -hmm. there are some podcasters who are doing that. Um, I would count Joe Rogan as one of them just for the, the questions that he asks, but just a, a, a level lower, there are some uh, shows that I listen to and have been a guest on that I think have people who are currently making a living at being public intellectuals not the level of celebrity of say a christopher hitchens but again i think that it's just maybe two or three years too early right I, I, but i do think that these people are going to have their day um because i think that there is going to be a hunger for sense making in the in the coming years based on what's going on economically and socially. And um, I just think that uh, the short answer to your question is, is no, right? That there, there's nobody else really like that right now. But I think there will be. Well, that is absolutely fascinating because there was a moment just a couple of seconds ago where you could not have come closer to echoing the position my mother takes about this very interestingly enough, which is really? a very you know okay. it's a strongly it's a strongly optimistic uh, you know program which which you just outlined and I you know a hunger for, for making sense and that's exactly the kind of terminology that she is. I find that really, really cool and I I, I want to take inspiration from that because I I do believe that uh, you know, as a man thinketh is the old saying, you know, it, it, mm -hmm. if we have an optimistic frame about this, we will have um, optimistic evidence as a result. And if we choose the other way to go or, or 
downgrade optimism in some way, we'll get those corresponding results too. I think we really can create, uh, I mean, the frame creates the subject. Mm-hmm. The subject, mm-hmm. unfortunately, mm-hmm. often you know, doesn't determine the frame. And that was one of our ideas that we looked at from the very, you know, from the get-go. And I think it, it really holds true. Well, I mean, look at look at where public intellectualism really spiked. I mean, the Vietnam War was a big one. Uh, post nine eleven is when you had Hitchens and Dawkins and Dennett and all these people sort of rise to prominence after the ultimate chaotic, nonsensical act of terrorism. You suddenly had people sort of clamoring for articulate individuals who could put things into perspective for them. I think that what we've been doing on this podcast and what a bunch of other podcasts that we've been listening to, we're early adopters uh, of an apocalypse, right? An apocalypse in the sense of the, you know, its its actual meaning, right? The revelation, the unveiling, you know? We sense that something is off. And it's in the next few years, I think personally because of the, uh, what I'm predicting to be something of a terrible economic collapse i think that will be the inciting event uh, perhaps bundled in a war or an act of terror that makes people hungry for sense making again and that is not to be misconstrued as hungering for that because it will be bad but any analysis of what's going on right now it's it's really hard to be you know to sugarcoat the whole thing. Like something bad right. is going to happen. And, and, and when, whenever that happens, people run to the sense makers. And then as things sort of get, get better, uh, they retreat back into, you know, celebrity gossip and Marvel movies and, uh, thinking that what we do is all nerd shit. So it's all, it's all cycles, man, but we're, we're, we're due for a turning here soon. I, I agree. I agree. I think that's a really good note to uh, segue to your imaginative challenge. What do you think? Are you, do you have something for us? The imaginative challenge. So I have, a, I have a title, and the title would be Words Are Violence. Okay. Because that's, that's, I think, something that we see very often that comes from the uh my generation <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the the millennial generation and so we start to find out that uh all of these assumedly boomer parents all have uh millennial children at home and uh huh you know i'm going to be real with you i was so into this conversation <laughs> i wasn't thinking about it this might okay, be my this might be my enough. first no, this, we, might, we, this might actually be my first failure but I have had no, so so, okay. so much Look. fun in this conversation that I completely uh, was just into it so apologies I'll come with something next time I'm very embarrassed I can actually feel we're doing a podcast and it's just <laughs> it's just you and me talking but my my face is so hot right now like i'm i'm extremely embarrassed <laughs> oh, no. by this oh but, no uh, look you shouldn't be uh there's a place in the world for an honest man now yeah. uh that's okay you can bring that back to us next time and i'll <laughs> i'll just I'll, I'll recap and and reframe 
what the challenge is. Because I, I think <clears throat> I wanted to, uh, first of all, uh, sort of tease out some of your thoughts about this cliched proposition of millennials either remaining at home or returning home when you're a millennial and you're in a very different situation. You're living right. very independently, yeah. you're raising a family. I, I thought that would be something interesting to include in the treatment. Uh, but we've got a situation where an investigative reporter starts noticing this strange pattern of mysterious deaths and wonders if they could be homicides. If they are homicides, would they be committed by these millennial children? Mm -hmm. And if so, what would be driving it? How would this have spread around the country? So there are a few things for you to, uh, to think about there, and we'll let you come back with that next week. You've been tremendous uh, on all your responses, so I think you can be forgiven uh, just you know, getting involved in this episode. And, and, and that was a difficult one. It's a real storytelling one. And it may point out to people listening that uh, storytelling is one of the highest forms of cognition there can be. Uh, there are a lot of elements of storytelling that we implicitly have within our minds, even if we don't articulate them or haven't studied English literature or something. Uh, it, it's very high level, so it, it's not an easy thing to... Uh, to compose a story based on a premise when you're having, you know, a, a fairly high-level, fast-paced discussion in another and that was so uh, much fun. Too. I feel I feel like I just got off a coaster. I, I had a great time. So, apologies again. I'm really sorry about that. I'm really embarrassed, <laughs> but but I'll come back with something cool. I promise. Cool. All right. Well, we know you will. So you're you're completely forgiven, and you're. Uh, we'll look forward to what you bring back next time. Uh, I have a kind of a, a, a tool uh, which I think we can derive a tip from, but it, it struck me funny to start with it. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I kind of liked it. So I want to just explore that in real time here with you if I could, because it's, mm -hmm. it's very fresh. For whatever reason, I flashed on... Uh, I think it was the first time that I was ever on stage as an actor. And it was back early in high school. I, was, I had a very bit part as part of the jury of the dead in the famous high school play, The Devil and Daniel Webster. I, I think people would, would know what's going mm -hmm. on with that. It was satirized in The Simpsons. It's, uh, it's just a, it's a perennial high school favorite. But I started thinking about this idea of, of a jury of the dead within us. You know, we often, you know, mm. in cartoons, there's a little conscience thing, a little angel on one shoulder and a little devil. And uh, in Pinocchio, there was Jiminy Cricket. He used to really upset the hell out of me. I wanted to smash him. Yeah. Except I liked the, the song, When You Wish Upon a Star. But I thought, you know, a jury... And maybe what got me thinking about it was the focus on the Supreme Court of light. I don't know. But I started thinking a jury, or maybe it's the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. You know, there's a lot of courtroom stuff and courtroom dramas and TV. And I think a jury is a very, very interesting idea that if we allow for a jury within, within us, uh, you know, multifaceted, not just good or bad, not just a, a small cast of, of uh, assessment 
type characters or voices, but a full-on jury that if we took that as an idea and, and just gave that some validity for a moment, it, it, it gives an interesting way to think of our psyches. It's another psychological model for looking at the terrain <clears throat> that is us. It, it's these characters. It's an ensemble cast that must reach some kind of consensus. And I like that idea a lot because it, it, the moment that, that sort of began to crystallize for me, I thought, that's a lot of what my decision-making conundrums are like. I may not see all the faces of the jury uh, clearly. I may know a couple of faces better than others, but I'm conscious of that presence of, of you know, a multifaceted cast of characters. And the moment I think you allow yourself to have the, that sort of cast of characters as part of that decision-making and self-doubt framework that you've got, then I think you can really start to work with it. You know, that old saying that self-doubt is the beginning of wisdom. I think there's some real truth in that. If you can, if you can actually live with the self-doubt and, and look at it in its 12 or so different faces, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's more of a thought or suggestion than a tool that I've put to the, any kind of uh, evaluation or testing yet. But no, it, I, think that, I think that that's really valuable for a couple of reasons. First of all, the idea of self-doubt being the beginning of wisdom, I think, is huge. I love the idea of a jury of the dead. But something you said, and it was almost a throwaway, but that opened up so much in my mind right now, was the idea of the interiority of a person being a terrain. You use the word terrain. And I was immediately hit with images of, you know, small human figures walking across some kind of volcanic landscape like the Scottish Highlands or Iceland or something like that. And the the idea that we're a terrain not only uh, is a great word choice for your tool but really kind of ties back into a lot of what we're talking about how do you hold a position yes or no pro or con good or evil when you're traversing a terrain it ties back into no country doesn't it I mean no I, that's country. kind of that's it yeah. man god damn this is a good episode I'm having fun. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. I am too. There's lots to think about in that. I think that might be a good starting point for, for next time because we have done a lot with the, the idea of terrain and we've thought a lot about, uh, Alfred, you know, this general semantics guy, however you pronounce his name, it's always hard for me to do. Uh, but the idea that the map is not the terrain, you know. Uh, right. There's there's an ongoing sort of, of wisdom in that. Uh but I've had fun too. I uh, do you want to hear the the dream? Yes, hit me with the the dream. Okay. Well, speaking of of the cinema, this was one of those dreams that really it was just like Renoir. It was so cinematically and artistically beautiful. It it really gave me a very curious feeling upon waking because I just wanted to back in that world filming it but 
I was in this city that was somewhere like a com weird composite of like an ancient Chinese forbidden city, you know, very walled and mysterious and, uh, and, and then a very strange version of Venice. So the whole thing was like this really odd and ornate board game, you know, on multiple levels. And there were all these canals. And instead of gondolas, I was on a canal and I was like everyone else on the water. I was floating in this very large carnival mask that was that's what the boats were. They were very thin wood, but beautifully made and completely, you know, like facially formed. So like a mask upside down, you know, and you'd be drifting along these canals and they, you did have poles, but it was just, just beautiful. And as I was thinking that the whole thing was kind of like a board game, I realized that that was what was going on that there were these figures in different costumes that had some regularity repetition. It was kind of a military sort of style in a certain way, but crazy and, and, and carnival-esque. And you couldn't quite tell what the pieces, you know, exactly represented or symbolized or the power levels, but they were all over the place. They were all over the city. They popped up, you know, on bridges and on turrets and out of little alleyways and stuff. And the thing that I realized and that really tripped me out about the city and what made me want to film it was however I got the information, I realized that there were multiple levels of games going on where there was very high up in the windows of, of one of the bigger buildings, there were controlling players who were deploying forces, you know, like a huge giant human chess game. That was going on. Mm -hmm. But there were a whole bunch of players or pieces in the game, living pieces in the game, that had gone rogue and were doing their own thing entirely and introducing all this sort of sudden chaos and confusion into the game plans. And it was just going on with this just theatrical... Uh, circus intensity of this mixture of real manipulation and plan and then total resistance and anarchy and individual eccentric you know decision making and it was just such a, a buzz and then floating on on the water of these canals and these giant masks it was it was just such a buzz and I was I was kind of sad to wake up I was sad to wake up